You finish up for the day, tired but excited to see him. Meeting him at the corner shop, he hands you the keys and asks you to drive the van behind him. You had discussed this before. He would ride his motorcycle and you would follow. He would signal when he made his decision. You hopped into the old van. It smelt of stale cigarettes and sweat. You open the window slightly and start the engine. He takes off and you slowly follow. Driving around that summer evening, the day turns to dusk. Up and down streets, you wait for the signal. The motorcycle ahead, you turns and flashes its lights. A passing teen was the indicator. She didn't see him, but you did. The signal. Now it's up to you. Get her into the van and take her to him. You pull up beside her, kind and charming. You ask for help locating an item you lost. She nods and gets in. So easy, and it's only the beginning. This was the Moore's murders, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. The Moore's murders were committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley from July 1963 to October 1965 in and around the Manchester area in England. The victims of their killings were five children, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downing and Edward Evans. They ranged in age from 10 to 17 and four were sexually assaulted. 1965, two of the victims were found and in 1987, a third was found, 20 years after the trial. Keith Bennett is thought to be buried near the tree found, but he has never been discovered despite searches. The pair were eventually charged, but only for the murders of John and Leslie and Edward. They received life sentences for these. In 1985, Brady confessed to killing Pauline and Keith, so the investigation was reopened. Myra being a woman really caught headlines, having her called the most evil woman in Britain. She would make many appeals against her sentence, claiming she was reformed, but she would never be released. Brady was diagnosed as a psychopath and confined in the high security Ashworth Hospital. He never wished to be released. Zoeen Brady was born January 2nd, 1938, as Ian Duncan Stewart in Glasgow, Scotland. His mother, Peggy, was an unwed room waitress, while his father is unknown. His mother would claim he died before Brady was born and he was a reporter. Peggy, alone and no support, couldn't care for Brady, so she gave him up to Mary and Joan Sloan. Brady would be now known as Ian Sloan. Peggy would visit often. Some people would say Brady tortured animals, but he denied this. At age nine, he went on a trip to Loch Lomond, a Scottish loch, where he is said to have fallen in love with the outdoors. Brady attended Shawlands Academy, which was for the above average students. But once here, Brady spiralled. Twice he would be in juvenile court for breaking and entering. At 15, he left school and got a job as a tea boy at Harland and Wolf Shipyard. Just nine months later, he was a butcher's messenger boy. During his teens, he had a girlfriend, Evelyn Grant, but it ended badly with Brady threatening her with a flick knife after he found out she attended a dance with another boy. 
At 17, he was once again in court with nine charges against him. He was placed on probation with a condition he was to live with his mother, Peggy. By this time, she was married in Manchester to an Irish fruit merchant, Patrick Brady. Patrick got Br Brady a job as a fruit porter. Brady would now go by the name Ian Brady. After his first year in Manchester, Brady was caught stealing and smuggling a sack of lead seals. He was sentenced to three months in strange ways. Being under 18, he had to do two years in Brostel, which is a type of youth detention for training. He went to Lockmere House in London for this, and then on to Hatfield. While he was here, he brewed his own alcohol and was found drunk one night, so was moved to a tougher unit in Hull. November 14, 1957, he was released and returned to Manchester. He had a few jobs, all of which he hated. But then he decided to better himself. He studied bookkeeping, shocking his parents with his determination. January 1959, he got a job as a clerical clerk. He was said to be shy, quiet, punctual, but short-tempered. So looking at Myra, she was born July 23rd, 1942, in a working class area of Manchester. Her father, Bob, Bob, was an alcoholic and was very abusive to all the family. The home was cold, damp and in poor condition. Myra slept in the same room as her parents. When her sister Maureen arrived in 1946, Myra was sent to live with her grandmother. Myra's father served with the parachute regiment. He was said to be a head army man and expected Myra to be tough, a fighter, not one to break down. At eight, Myra came home in tears with a cut on her cheek from a local boy. Rather than give her sympathy, her father threatened to beat her if she didn't seek revenge. Myra went out again, found the boy and bet him up, scoring what she would call her first victory. June 1957, Myra was invited swimming by a friend, Michael Higgins. Myra chose not to go. Michael sadly drowned that day. Myra felt such guilt, blaming herself and truly believing if she was there, she could have saved him. After this, she was drawn into the Catholic faith. She had been baptized Catholic, but wasn't practicing. But after Michael, she became more involved, completing her communion in 1958. Myra's first job was a junior clerk at an electrical engineering firm. Here she ran errands, typed, made tea and was overall well liked. So much so that when she lost her wage pack, her colleagues did a collection to replace it. At 17 she was engaged but it ended because the boy couldn't give her the life she wanted. In her spare time she did judo. Her next job was in Bratby and Hitchcliffe but was let go when she started to not show up. January 1961, Myra was now 18 and began a job at Millwards as a typist, the same place Brady was working. Myra was instantly attracted to Brady, even with his criminal past. She daydreamed about him for months. In July, she finally spoke to him. Her diaries had fantasy comments until December 22nd when Brady asked her out. Their dates were very structural cinema, usually X-rated film, and then back to Myra's for German wine. Brady would give Myra books to read. The pair would read these on their lunch breaks. 
out loud, I may add. The books were of Nazi accounts on the interests of Brady's. Myra began to change her appearance to look more Aryan. Bleach blonde hair, blood red lipstick. In her diary, she noted concerns about Brady, including once being drugged by him, but the majority of the entries were about her obsession of him. Myra's fashion also changed, becoming a bit more risky. High boots, short skirts and leather jackets. The pair became less sociable. They'd often go to libraries reading up on true crimes and torture, becoming isolated from the world. Myra often hired a van, even without a license, which she didn't get until November 1963. The couple would plan and discuss imaginary bank robberies using this van. Myra would become friendly with George Clithero, who was the president of the Rifle Club. He arranged for Myra to buy a .22 rifle. Myra asked to join the club, but wasn't a great shot and a hot temper, so George then gently advised her against it. Myra did manage to buy from the members. She bought a Webley .45 and a Smith & Wesson .38. Now the bank robbery was all talk and nothing happened, and the pair changed the focus into photography. They took photos of each other that at the time were raunchy. All of this marked a change of Myra. The once quiet, shy, prudish girl was now far from it. Myra said Brady spoke about committing the perfect murder in July 1963. He often spoke about Myra Levin's compulsion, a story about fictional characters Leopold and Loeb, two young men from wealthy families who tried to commit the perfect murder of a 12-year-old and how they escaped the death penalty due to their age. In the June 1963, Brady moved into Myra at her grandmother's home. On July 12, 1963, Brady told Myra this was the day for the perfect murder. After work, he told Myra to get a van and drive around while he followed on his motorcycle. When he found his victim, he would flash his headlights. On Gordon Lane, Brady seen a young girl and signalled. But Myra didn't stop. She knew the little girl. She was just eight and a neighbour of her mother's. Next on Foxmore Street, Brady signalled again. This was for 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Pauline Myra knew as a friend of her sister's Maureen. Myra stopped and offered Pauline a lift. It's not clear if in fact Brady really chose Pauline or if Myra did, but what is clear is Myra felt that the disappearance of Pauline would be less attention-grabbing than that of an eight-year-old. Once Pauline got into the van, Myra asked for her help to find a glove at Saddlewood Moor. Pauline agreed and off they went. Brady arrived after them with Myra saying he was there to help. Later, Myra said she waited in the van while Brady took Pauline into the moors. 30 minutes later, Brady returned alone. He then took Myra to Pauline, who was nearly decapitated and dying. Brady admitted to raping Pauline. Brady would fetch a spade and Myra returned to the van while Brady buried Pauline. Brady would later claim Myra was not only there, but also took part. November 23rd, 1963, early that evening at a market, Brady and Myra offered John Kilbride, who was 12, a lift home. Once inside the hired car, Brady announced a detour for some sherry, promising John a bottle. 
While driving, the lost love came up, so another detour to the moors was done. Brady took Kilbride into the moors while Myra waited. He sexually assaulted Kilbride, tried to slit his throat, but when that failed, he strangled him with a shoelace. June 16, 1964, Myra stopped Keith Bennett, age 12, to help her load boxes into her mini pickup, which he did. She offered him a lift home because she had delayed him. Brady was in the back of the pickup. The mysterious lost glove came up and he ended up at the moors once again. Brady took Bennett off to find the glove. Brady returned with the spade he hid earlier. When later questioned about Bennett, he admitted to sexually assaulting the boy and strangling him with a string. With Pauline's disappearance, her boyfriend David Smith was suspected. He was questioned and cleared of any involvement in her disappearance. John Cabai's disappearance had a huge search effort of sev with 700 statements taken and 500 missing persons posters printed. A week after he went missing, 2,000 volunteers searched waste grounds and derelict buildings, finding nothing. With Keith Bennett's disappearance, his stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, was a suspect, being questioned over four times. Searches were done even under floorboards of the house, and when it was found that the house was connected to all connected in a row of houses, the entire street was searched, but found nothing. So August 15, 1964, Myra's sister Maureen married Pauline Reed's boyfriend David Smith. The marriage was fast. None of the family of Maureen's attended. My Myra didn't approve and her mother was very ashamed because Maureen was seven months pregnant. The next day, Brady suggested the newlyweds, him and Myra, go on a trip. Brady was impressed by Smith. The two chatted and discussed crimes like robbing a bank. Smith was impressed with Brady, who spoiled the newlyweds paying for food and wine. Myra was a bit jealous of the buddy-buddy chaps, but did grow closer to Maureen. 1964, Myra, her grandmother and Brady were rehomed as part of the post-war slum clearance. They were moved to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue. Here, Brady and Myra befriended 11-year-old Patricia Hodges, who lived four doors down. Patricia would go on spins with the two to the moors to get Pete. The couple never harmed Patricia, mainly because she lived so close, making them immediate suspects. Boxing Day in 1964, Myra left her grandmother at a relative's home, refusing to take her back to the home until that night. Myra and Brady went to a fun fair in Ancoats later that day. Here they seen Leslie Ann Downing, who was 10. They claimed she was alone. The pair were carrying shopping while they passed her and accidentally on purpose dropped it. They would ask her for help to carry the shopping to the car and on to their home. At the house, Leslie was undressed, gagged, forced to pose for no photos and then raped. After this, they killed her. Myra would say Brady killed Leslie while Myra went to fill the baths. Brady would say Myra killed her. The next day, they buried her in the moors in a shallow grave where her clothes sat at her feet. Despite a huge search, Leslie was not found. By February 1965, Patricia Hodges stopped with her visits. 
Myra's brother-in-law, Smith, was still a regular. Brady and Smith read, discussed and plotted robberies and murders. On Myra's 23rd birthday, word came her sister Maureen and Smith were rehomed to a block of flats not far from them. The two couples began seeing more and more of each other, but only if Brady agreed. October 6, 1965, Myra drove Brady to the railway station. She waited while he went and chose a victim. Brady came out with Edward Evans, who was 17. Brady introduced Myra as his sister. Brady claimed Edward was picked up as a sexual encounter. They went back to their home and drank wine. During the drinks, Myra was sent by Brady to get Smith. Myra never liked Smith, nor did her family, and she always had this uneasy feeling around him. But Myra did as she was told and got Smith. She told him to wait outside for a signal, in this case, a flashing light. The signal came and Smith knocked the door. Brady welcomed him in, mentioning miniature wine bottles. He motioned Smith to the kitchen. A scream would come, followed by more. Then Myra called for Smith to help. Smith came into the living room where Brady was throttling a young chap. During the struggle, Brady sprained his ankle. He had a hatchet in a hand hitting the boy. Edward was dead. Edward was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own, so they wrapped Edward in plastic sheeting and put him in the spare room. Shocked, Smith agreed to come back the next day with his baby's pram. This was to get Edward to the car and then they could take him to the moors. Smith went home at 3am, shaking, he asked his wife to make tea. He drank it and vomited it everywhere. He told his wife absolutely everything. Smith didn't sleep. He waited until daylight at about 6am. He took a screwdriver and a bread knife and walked to the phone box on the estate. He called the police and they sent a squad car to pick him up. He was taken to the station and he confessed to everything he had witnessed. Superintendent Talbert went to the home. He pretended to be a bread man and spoke to Myra at the back door. He asked if her husband was home. When Myra did denied having a husband or a man at the home, Talbert officially identified himself. Myra then took Talbert into the living room where Brady lay writing notice to his employer about his injured ankle. Talbert explained the investigation regarding a violent act with guns that happened the evening before. Myra denied all but allowed the search. The spare room where Edward lay was locked. The police requested to open it and Myra tried to explain the keys were at her work. This didn't fly and the police instead insisted to take her to get them. At this point, Brady knew and told her to open it. Once they saw the body, the police came back down to the living room and arrested Brady. As he was leaving, Brady said, quote, Edward and I had a row and the situation got out of hand, end quote. At this time, Myra wasn't arrested, but she demanded to go with Brady and even took her dog. When asked to make a statement, Myra only said Edward's death was an accident. Myra was allowed home only if she returned the next day. Over the next four days, Myra went to her employer, requesting to be let go so she could claim benefits. On October 11th, Myra was arrested 
charged as an accessory to the murder and she was remanded at H.M. Prison, Risley. Police would search the home, finding a school type book with John Kilbride's name. This gave speculation that Brady and Meyer were involved in his disappearance. Back in custody, Brady admitted he and Edward had a fight. He admitted he and Smith killed Edward, and Myra only did what she was told. Smith would say Brady asked him to return incriminated items, like strange books. Brady packed these odd items into a suitcase. Smith ins insisted he didn't know what exactly was in the suitcase or where it was, but did hint that Brady liked train stations. On October 15th, a search of Manchester Central Railway unclaimed luggage would find suitcase. The claims ticket was later found in Myra's prayer book. They found a couple of odd suitcases. Inside one was photos of Leslie Ann Downing, naked with a scarf tied across her mouth. There was also audio tape of a recording of a girl's voice, stating her name is Leslie Ann Weston. In it, she screamed, cried and begged to go home. Leslie's mother would confirm that it was her daughter who was speaking. Police spoke to the neighbours landing at Patricia Hodge's house. She told them about going to the moors with Brady and Myra and could tell them their favourite spots. With this information, the police searched the area. October 16th, they found an arm bone sticking out from Pete. The next day, it was confirmed as Leslie. Her mother made an identification from the clothing which was buried with her. In amongst the photos in the suitcase was ones of the moors. October 21st, a badly decomposed body was found. Later from the clothing, it was confirmed to be John Kilbride. Later on the 21st, Brady and Myra appeared at Hyde Magistrates Court, charged with Leslie Ann Downing's murder. The investigators suspected Brady and Myra of killing more children who vanished. So searches continued until the November, when it was called off due to winter starting. The police would show Brady the tapes they found. He admitted to taking photos of Leslie, but spun a story that two men took her to the house, but she left with them alive. December 2nd, Brady was now charged with kill killing John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downing and Edward Evans. Myra was charged with the murder of Leslie and Edward, but only as an accessory to John Kilbride's murder. December 6th, a hearing was done. Here, Brady was formally charged with the murders of the three and Myra of the two, along with harboring Brady, knowing he had killed John. Prosecutors did opening statements on camera. Defence asked for the same, but was denied. Proceedings went before three magistrates for 11 days, and then the pair were committed for trial at Chester's Assizes. Photos of the pair in the moors were found in the suitcase, many of them with Myra's dog, Puppet, some as young as a pup. So to help date the photos, the police asked a vet to examine the dog to get an age. To do the exam, the dog had to be put on a general anaesthetic. Puppet sadly didn't make wake up. Myra was so angry on set, she accused the police of murdering Puppet. This was one of only a few times police witnessed any emotions from her. April 19, 1966, a 14th trial began. To protect Brady and Myra, the courtroom was fitted with security screens. Attorney General Jones led prosecution with Mars Jones. Brady was defended by Houston QC and Myra by Helpern QC. QC stands for Queen's Council. 
The whole trial was before Justice Atkinson. Smith would be the top witness for the prosecution. So before the trial, Smith was approached by newspapers for his story. He eventually went with News of the World, who gave a deal with payments of £15 a week until the trial and a £1,000 lump sum if the pair were convicted. This said I was questioned in court by the defence. Smith gave the name of the paper and Attorney General Jones promised an investigation. Justice Atkinson would conclude Smith's testimony wasn't affected by financial incentive. The pair entered pleas of not guilty. Brady gave testimony for over eight hours and Myra close to six. Brady admitted to hitting Edward with an axe but said he didn't kill Edward. Blaming someone else using the pathologist's statement cause of death was strangulation. Brady was cold, calm and arrogant with little to no connection with the jury. Myra denied knowledge that the photos taken up at the moors were near graves or victims. The tapes of Leslie were played. Brady and Myra were clearly he- were clearly heard on these tapes. Myra admitted being cruel to Leslie, but it was to stop her screaming so attention wouldn't happen. Myra claimed she was downstairs when Leslie was being undressed. She was looking out the window when the nudes were taken and that she was running a bath when Leslie was being strangled. May 6th, just two hours of deliberation, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Myra on the murder of Edward Evans and Leslie Ann Downing. While the two were remanded, the death penalty was abolished, so the judge passed the highest he could legally, which was life in prison. Brady got three concurrent life sentences. Myra got two concurrent life sentences, plus a concurrent seven year for harboring Brady, knowing he killed John Kilbride. Brady went to HM Prison Durham and Myra to HM Prison Holloway. Justice Atticuson said Brady was wicked beyond belief and no reasonable possibility of reform. Regarding Myra, he felt once Brady's influence was removed, he po- she possibly could be reformed. In 1985, Brady spoke to a journalist named Fred Harrison. Brady allegedly told him he killed Keith Bennett and Pauline Reed. This police suspected, so they reopened the investigation when hearing this. Once the pair were arrested, newspapers were on a mission to connect them to other missing kids from the area. One such victim was three-year-old Stephen Jennings. He was last seen December 1962. His body was found in 1986 in a field. In 1989, his father was found guilty of his murder. Another was the disappearance of Jennifer Teague, 14. She went missing in December 1964 from a children's home. She would be mentioned in the press 40 years later as a possible victim, but police confirmed she was alive. The reason for this thinking was because in 2004, Myra told an inmate she and Brady killed a sixth victim, a teenage girl. July 3, 1985, DCS Topping visited Brady to talk to him. He found him scornful at any suggestion that he had confessed to more murders, but police still believed there was more victims. So using the Moore's photos to try to identify more burial sites. In 1986, Keith Bennett's mother wrote to Myra pleading to know what happened to her son. The letter appeared to actually move Myra. 
Days later, police visited Myra, hoping emotions would be high that she might talk. Myra refused any involvement in the killings, but said she would help by looking at photos and maps to identify spots she visited with Brady. December 16, 1986, Myra made her first of two visits to help the search at the moors. Police closed the roads, had 200 officers in patrol, some of which were armed. At 4am, Myra and her solicitor flew to the moors by helicopter, then were driven to the area and walked around until 3pm. The visit didn't go great, called a fiasco and a mindless waste of money by the press. December 19th, David Smith visited the moors to help. DCS Toplin continued to visit Myra in prison. February 10th, 1987, Myra formally confessed to being involved in five murders. Her statement would be recorded and was 17 hours long. Toppin felt it was more of a performance rather than a confession. She made sure never to replace herself at the killings. She was in the van, over the brow of a hill, running a bath or in the kitchen, so he felt it was more planned than truthful. So police went to Brady telling him Myra confessed. He didn't believe them so they gave him details only she would know in particular about Pauline, Pauline Reed's abduction. This swayed Brady and he was peer, prepared to confess, but only if he, right after he could commit suicide, a request they couldn't agree to. Around this time, Keith Bennett's mother sent another letter to Myra pleading again to find his body. Myra made a third visit to the Moors, March 1987. Security for this visit was higher she stayed overnight this time and visited the moors twice. Myra confirmed the areas being searched were correct but couldn't locate the graves. Later she remembered where Pauline was buried. April 1987, word got out about Myra's confession. Over the next couple of months, interest in the search began to wane, but Myra's memory was helpful, focusing the efforts. July 1st, they found Pauline Reed. Brady at the time was cooperating. When word came to find Pauline, Brady confessed to CCS, DCS topping. He would agree to help in the search for others. July 3rd, he was taken to the moors, but appeared confused, blaming terrain changes. By 3 p.m. that day, the search was called off by, by DCS topping. DCS topping would refuse a second visit. August 24th, the search was called off, but December 8th, Brady visited the moors once again, claiming he knew exactly where Keith Bennett was buried, but Keith's body wasn't found. When he returned from the moors, Brady wrote to a BBC reporter. He gave vague details about five others he had killed. A man in Piccadilly area, Manchester, another in the moors, two in Scotland, and a woman he dumped in a canal. Police would follow these up, but found no unsolved crimes matching them. Myra would be questioned on these and said she knew nothing. So Brady and Myra confessed they killed Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, but the Director of Public Prosecution, DPP, decided nothing would be gained having more trials, as the pair were already serving life the highest possible sentence. 2003, Operation Maidia was launched. 
This was the search for Keith Bennett using better technology. Mid-2009, it was announced all avenues have been exhausted in the search for Keith Bennett. Only a major breakthrough or fresh evidence would have it reopened. If Brady was to be involved, it would be done virtually. 2012, rumours came Brady gave the location of Keith's body to a female visitor. A woman was arrested but within months was let go due to lack of evidence. 2017, two sick suitcases of Brady's were found locked. A call to open was requested on grounds that may hold more information about Keith. It was denied because no prosecution was likely to happen. So after his conviction, Brady went to HM Prison Durham, where he asked to be in solitary confinement. He spent 19 years in mainstream prison. November 1985, he was diagnosed as a psychopath. He was moved to the high security Ashwood Hospital. Here, he himself made it clear he never wanted to be released. Brady refused to work with doctors, but spoke to people outside the hospital, like journalists. In a letter to one, he said murders were merely an existential exercise lasting just a year, ending December 1964. After that, he claimed he and Meyer turned to robbery and began preparing, gathering guns and vehicles. In 1999, Brady was attacked by a staff member in what he called an hour-long unprovoked attack. From it, he broke his wrist. Brady then went on a hunger, hunger strike. Now, English law allows patients to refuse treatment, but under the Mental Health Act 1998, those with mental disorders did not have that right. So Brady was force-fed and set, sent to another hospital for tests after he fell ill. He recovered and in March 2000 asked if the legality to force-feed him could go for a judicial review. It was refused. In 2005, Keith Bennett's mother received a letter from Brady. In it, he claimed he took police within metres of her son's body. He didn't name Keith and didn't claim he could take them directly to the grave, but spoke of his clarity on the matter. 2012, Brady wanted, went back to prison. He requested the right to starve himself to death in June 2013. A mental health tribunal would be held to change his diagnosis from paranoid schizophrenia to personality disorder. The application to return to prison was denied. May 15, 2017, Brady died of restrictive pulmonary disease. He was cremated with no ceremony and his ashes disposed of sea during the night. Over with Myra, she had appeals denied. She would keep in contact with Brady until 1971 when she ended the relationship. Myra would then fall in love with a prison warden, Patricia Carnes. Such relationships were common. Many officers were gay and would become involved with each other or inmates. Myra won a petition to have her Category A status changed to Category B, allowing her to walk the grounds with Governor Wing. This was part of an unofficial policy of reintroducing her to the outside world when she felt ready. This caused serious uproar, with Wing getting an official disapproval from Robert Carr, the then Home Secretary. With help from her lover Patricia and outside contacts with prisoner Maxine Croft, Myra began to plan an escape, but this was scuttled when key impressions were found by an off-duty cop. Patricia got six years for her involvement. 
Now, Myra was told she had to do 25 years before being considered for parole. The Lord Chief Justice felt this fair in 1982. But January 1985, Jason Britton, Home Secretary, changed it to 30 years. By this time, Myra claimed she was Reformed Catholic. Leslie Dowen's mother always fought for Myra never to be released. She sadly died in 1999. Any time Myra was rumoured to be released, she would give TV and newspaper interviews. July 1990, Home Secretary David Waddington imposed the whole life tariff after Myra confessed to being more involved than she previously admitted. Myra wasn't told of this until 1994, when the law changed that the prison service had to inform all life prisoners. 1996, the parole board suggested Myra be moved to an open prison. Myra declined this in 1998, moving her to a medium security high point. December 1997 to March 2000, Myra made three appeals against her life's heart, claiming she was reformed and no longer a danger. All three were rejected. In 2002, a life sentence prisoner challenged the power to set minimum terms. Myra and hundreds of others whose towers were increased by politicians now looked likely to be released. With her release on the horizon, Home Secretary David Blunkett ordered to find new charges against her to pre prevent this release. At first, they were, to go, they were going to charge her with the murder of Reed and Bennett but because of the DPP desire 15 years before not to pursue a new trial, this would be seen as an abusive process. November 25, 2002, the law lords all agreed judges only had the power to set time behind bars, not politicians, and stripped home secretaries of the power as well. But before this, on November 15th, Myra died aged 60. She was a heavy smoker and died of bronchial pneumonia. She had issues before in 1999 when she was diagnosed with angina and hospitalised after a brain aneurysm. Myra was cremated, although it took a while as 20 local undertakers refused to handle the cremation. Her ex-partner Patricia Carn scattered Myra's ashes. After the trial, David Smith was hated in Manchester. He appeared to be profiting from the murders. During the trial, Maureen, who was eight months pregnant, was attacked in her building. Their home was vandalised, they got hate mail, and Maureen feared for her children's safety. One night during a fight, Smith stabbed a man. He was sentenced to three years in prison in 1969. That year, his children were taken into care. Maureen would move and received no family support. Once released, Smith moved in with a 15-year-old who became his second wife, and he won custody of his children. Maureen divorced Smith in 1973 and married Bill Scott, a lorry driver, and they had one daughter. In 1980, Maureen had a brain hemorrhage. Myra was called to visit her in hospital, but came an hour after Maureen's death. Sheila and Patrick Kilbride, John Kilbride's parents, would attend the funeral in hopes Myra would be there. Patrick thought Maureen's stepdaughter was Myra and tried to attack her. John's mother, Sheila, always said if Myra got out of jail, she'd kill her, 
a threat that her son Danny also made clear he would also do. In 1972, Smith's father had terminal cancer and died. Smith was thought to have killed him. He was acquitted of murder but pled guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to two days detention. Smith remarried and moved to Lincolnshire and was exonerated of any part in the Moore's murder by Myers' confession in 1983. In 2012, Smith died from cancer in Ireland. The victim's parents would have a life of turmoil. Reed's mother was admitted to Springfield Mental Hospital. At her daughter's funeral in 1987, she had to be heavily sedated. Five years after Kilbride went missing, his parents divorced. Leslie Downey's mother died in 1999 from liver cancer. Bennett's mother would visit the moors, believing Keith was buried there. She died in 2012. In 1987, Manchester City Council demolished Brady and Myra's house to avoid ongoing media attention in the area. November 2017, it came out that the University of Leeds kept remains of Pauline Reed for Greater Manchester Police. They apologised to the family and in October 2018, her remains were reburied at her grave. Brady, who seemed to accept his fate requesting to remain in prison, was rarely mentioned in the press. Myra Doe, with her ongoing fight to be released, made her a public hated figure. Myra's roles in the crimes brought forth the idea a woman could go against the gender norms. Her betrayal of the maternal role would have the public thinking she was born evil. Some even believe she was more evil than Brady himself. Thank you all for listening. Next time I'll be looking at Robert F. Kennedy, brother of US President John F. Kennedy. Robert fought organized crime and worked for a civil rights firm African Americans. He spoke for the poor and racial minorities. He also opposed escalations of the Vietnam War. He met the same fate as his brother John. Robert was assassinated aged just 42. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.